What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show, presented by The Big Lead. My guest today is Liam McEwen, a prolific writer for The Big Lead. He has two large pieces up today in rapid succession. It's a real red-letter day for Liam. First, he wrote about Scott Hansen, his recovery process from hosting the Red Zone, which was really interesting. And then secondly, he had a piece on the Monday Night Football booth at ESPN entering the second year and how they negotiate the three-man booth, and more than anything, he's a dyed-in-the-wool Patriots fan, and it's been a bit eventful up there. So I thought I'd tap his perspective on the first two pieces, and then he could serve as an underrepresented group in the media, which is Boston sports fan. The first item, <laughs> let's talk Hanson, Liam. It was, it was a great read. Why don't you tell me about the thought process behind what you were trying to do and, and what you learned from the process? Well, I appreciate the kind words, Kyle. It was uh, very proud of it. It was a pretty, it was really fun to write and kind of, you know, our collective angle on it that we were thinking was that so many people have written all these articles about Scott Hansen's durability and his stamina and being able to stand in one spot in the NFL Network studio in Los Angeles, California for seven hours of commercial free football. And, you know, how he does that and so much talk about his bathroom usage. So we decided what if, we talked about what happened afterwards. Scott Hansen, at the end of the day, is just a guy like us who goes to work and then he goes home. What does he do when he gets home? How does one manage to recover their body from one of the more physically challenging jobs in sports media? He doesn't drink any water for the entirety of the show or eat any food, as many people well know. And what people might not know is that he also cuts himself off from any consumption three hours prior to showtime. So this guy's getting home after 10 hours of not eating or drinking anything. He mentioned that to me last year when I talked to him about uh, the red zone setup for coronavirus. And so that was sort of the angle is what, you know, how do how does one train their body to recover in that manner? And it was a, it was a lot of fun to write. Scott Hansen's a really cool guy. And I think it came out well. It just, uh, one of the things that stood out to me is that we have such a weird spot in this business, people who report on sports media, because it's not really like, you know, when people write big profiles on athletes, like everybody knows what's going on. Like an athlete is there to get written about and everybody knows that. And even to an extent, some of like the really, really big names in sports media industry, like at this point, it's been so long for like Al Michaels, and Jim Nance and stuff that everybody wants to know about them and write about them. And they understand that. But for Hanson, He's in that he's very well known and everybody loves him and he's done a lot of profiles, but it's also kind of weird because I'm ultimately just writing about what this guy does on a Sunday night. And Hanson was really cool about it. And even more than that, he was super excited about it. He thought it was a really cool idea. And he really went into the interview with way more enthusiasm than I ever would have expected from somebody who is just kind of, you know, he's just a guy he's out there. He's doing a great job and everybody loves his work, but ultimately he's a guy. And it was a, uh, it was good stuff. It was interesting. It was a lot of fun. And ultimately, Hanson's just like the rest of us, where he just wants to eat cheap food and watch football on Sunday night uninterrupted. I think what's interesting about his 
specific role is it is so physically taxing, right? I mean, every profile that was written about him kind of explores kind of the same ground or attacks it from a new angle. And it is kind of a Herculean task to be that on, to keep that energy level up for so long. It's without commercials. Like it's, that's a very rare thing to do. Even on a streaming service, there's not seven hours consecutive of a broadcast where someone's not taking a little break. I think the thing about it that makes him so good at what he does is that enthusiasm is authentic. I underestimated him as a broadcaster for so long because I thought that he was doing a job that a lot of other people could do and he wasn't adding a lot of value. But after examining him from, you know, afar for longer, I really see the artistic and creative flourishes he adds. He's so well researched. He knows exactly what's going on. He's got the clever catchphrases that kind of harken back to like a sports center anchor that I grew up with. What does he feel like at the end of performing? And even though it comes from a very real place, it is amped up a little bit because that red light is on. What does he feel like immediately after that goes off? I mean, absolutely everything's authentic, but I think the dial is not as turned off as you would expect after red zone. It's kind of just a more you know, loud version of Hanson who's on TV and way more rapid fire. He talks with a very, at a normal pace when he's, you know, talking to me or anybody else, I would imagine. But I mean, to hear the guy just talk about how he sits down on his couch and turns on his five gigantic televisions and watches highlights of everything that he had basically called all day. The enthusiasm is the exact same as if he were to be calling a 70 yard touchdown pass to Tyree Kill. And that's the remarkable thing about it is that, you know, I love sports. I love my job. And, you know, I, every, most, if not all of the people in our industry love sports, like the job, there is a burnout that exists. Like you get to the end of a day of, you know, working college football and you're writing about college football all day. You may not necessarily want to sit down and watch the 8 PM Clemson Georgia game, but most relevant to what we're talking about right now, the last thing you're going to do is basically examine all of your work at, with excitement and then watch the game with the same attention and the same passion that you would or that you had just been doing work all day. I think 90% of the people in our industry would probably like rather not do that. But with Hampton, it's all authentic. He absolutely loves this shit. He loves it. And that was, I mean, you kind of get that, right? I mean, you, did, you said, and we both agreed that this enthusiasm that he has on the broadcast is genuine. Like, you know, this guy likes football. But hearing about him talk about how much he loves football when he's not working is just a different level of like, this is this guy's exactly where he needs to be. I guess it kind of opens up the conversation at this point to, is this the best way to watch football? Is it the best broadcast? Because so much money has been spent and so much intrigue at other networks about how they're going to present things. Whereas the form has already been perfected in my mind by Red Zone. There is nothing like it. I don't consume football any other way on Sundays. I really don't. I might switch over to a Lions game if it's close, but very rarely am I going over to a singular broadcast. I do live in the Stone Age, only one TV in my living room. And I'll be honest, I don't always have control over it. I mean, I've lost 
I've lost control over here. We <laughs> all know that that happens as you get old and you have a family. But to me, Red Zone is like the purest distillation of exactly the way I would want to watch sports. And that's what makes it the best. And it only is that way because Hanson serves that role and adds to the perspective and makes it layered, makes it deep. He does such a good job bringing me along for the journey. Whereas otherwise I feel like I would be lost and a bit overwhelmed by it. So I was curious your thoughts on if it's your preferred method to watch football, if it's the best broadcast, or if you still kind of have more traditional viewership. I think that the concept of red zone is, as you said, it is the perfect distillation. It's the perfect way to watch sports. If they had a red zone for a packed afternoon of baseball games or a red zone for one to four, even just one to 4 PM on college football Saturdays, everybody would watch it. And it's remarkable to me to get slightly off track here that red zone even exists because especially now that everybody is even the casual fan is acutely aware of how much money goes into sports and especially the NFL and how much of that is advertising money that anybody, especially the league itself, would agree to allow people to avoid all of those advertisements and therefore sacrifice a little pocket change in the process for a better viewing experience. That is something that I couldn't comp like if Red Zone was suggested today, I think they get laughed out of the room. But we're fortunate enough that it was established, you know, 10 years ago now, almost, I think. And it's, uh, it's been great. But I do think that what makes Red Zone special is the Hanson. I think that a Red Zone for any of the other sports that I mentioned would be great and everybody would watch it. But the Red Zone fandom community is almost like a cult in how much they worship Scott Hanson. Like that is something really, really, really rare in the sports broadcasting game for everybody to collectively love this guy. I mean, people feel the same with similar ways about Jim Nance, Al Michaels, even Tony Romo now, but you will find that guy on Twitter or that person in your friend group who's like, ah, you know, I don't really like him. He has this annoying intonation or I don't like this catchphrase, but I have never met a single person in my life who has a bad thing to say about Scott Hansen in any capacity. And so that kind of element of his persona that just appeals to everybody and the fact that red zone is such an excellent idea and product in and itself means it's the perfect way to watch football on a Sunday. Now I will occasionally watch every snap of a Patriots game instead, because as you previously mentioned, die to the wool, things of that nature. I love my team so much that I want to watch every snap and see what I notice and kind of keep track of the progression of the younger guys on the team and that sort of stuff. Like that's what I find fun. But if there's a Patriots game on, there's red zone on another screen somewhere. Yeah, your second piece was exploring the second year for the three-man booth at ESPN. And I think that ESPN is an interesting spot because over the past five years, they've missed some opportunities. And I think that they've stunted their ability to grow. Um, one of the things that I reported, when Steve Levy was a dark horse name, for the job. He kind of came out of nowhere and he came closer to getting it than a lot of people think two times ago. And I wonder if you gave truth serum to execs in Bristol, if they would tell you that, yes, we should have made that choice right then, because much like a young quarterback, not that leave he is young, he would be in his fifth year of progression or his fourth year of progression instead of his second what was the general vibe? It was a conference call. It was open to everybody else. I heard there was a hot mic. McCarthy heard about it. Let's clean that up. Let's tighten it up. What's the vibe going into year two? Cautious optimism. 
they gave a lengthy opening statements that described the challenges of last year. And we all understand and recognize that it must have been insanely difficult for this crew to meet together and try to get this to work on the fly with all eyes on them as the new Monday night trio after the previous two iterations had kind of crashed and burned somewhat dramatically. And I think they were optimistic. I think that they all recognized that they could do, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. Everybody said the right things about that. But I didn't get the sense that anybody was down about their performance last year. I think that they just wished it could have been better because everybody wishes everything could have been better in 2020. It's more of a that sort of uh, sort of mindset and viewpoint on it. And so, you know, I think they're ready to go. I think it'll be um, I think it'll be a good year. I think the thing with this Monday night crew is that they succeeded where the previous two iterations have failed, where nobody is talking about them on Tuesday in a bad way. Everybody was, I feel the general reception was that like, it was fine. And for the first year of a broadcasting crew, especially this particular broadcasting job, especially with those particular circumstances, that is the best they possibly could have hoped for. Well, it's a property. And, and as much as you want to have a home run hire and a broadcast team that draws people in, the worst thing you can do is have one that draws people away. And whether people are actively not watching Monday Night Football because they didn't like the actual broadcasters over the last few years, I highly doubt. It obviously had more to do with kind of like a historically bad run of stinkers. Like, you know, like you put a good game on there, you throw the Monday Night Football brand on there, you're going to have a good time. Uh, it's going to be a much better product than a bad game with the Monday Night Football brand. I think that Levy is fantastic. I think he's as talented as anybody at ESPN. He can do Sports Center and he can do this. He was ready for the job years ago. Uh, he should. It should be no surprise that I think that he's stepped in and he doesn't try too hard. He has fun. He has just the right vibe. He's always willing to share the ball. It doesn't seem like work and it doesn't seem like He's trying too hard or they're trying too hard. And I, and Riddick obviously is so good with his observations. He knows the game from a bunch of different ways and he's economical with his words. Greasy. I'm not the number one fan. I don't have a greasy foam finger around my house, but he's fine. And you need him kind of in there as the quarterback perspective. You look at other quarterbacks they could have got, maybe this was the best option, but I would say going into this year, there should be optimism that it's better than last year, but I don't know what the ceiling is for this particular bro broadcast. And I'm wondering if that ceiling even needs to be high. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I kind of agree with you that it's hard to see the, it's hard to determine the ceiling for this group because Levy is rock solid. Riddick comes at the game with a very analytical mindset and greasy is there to kind of, you know, at quarterback perspective and he kind of, keeps the train moving when they have these longer discussions on the on air but you know i'm not sure i mean what's the end goal you know i it's a good broadcast but i don't know if it, i how do you even make a quote-unquote great broadcast like Mal michaels and chris collinsworth are good at their job no doubt about it how much better are they than the other individuals in their uh field they're definitely a little better, but the margin of difference between Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and the number two group at NBC is not as wide in the gap as the popularity is. 
So I think there's almost there's a certain there's a certain button that you have to push with the general public to get people to really, really, really like your announcers, because it's like what you said, you know, people aren't going to tune in or turn off the game because of the broadcasters it has everything to do with, all, with what's on the field. If you have good broadcasters, that makes the experience better. They'll get praise from people who care about that sort of thing. But I would guess like 85% of the football watchers who are turning on ESPN every Monday night tune these guys out or don't listen to them. And it has nothing to do with how good they are. It's just that for most of these people, it's about football. It's kind of an impossible task to try to build up something like that. Like CBS just got really, really lucky with Tony Romo. I think we can all admit that. Tony Romo is great, great on CBS for identifying that talent. Nobody could have predicted that Tony Romo resonates the way that he does with the general viewing population. And he is the only announcer that I would say perhaps might break my rule that I just said, where people aren't turning on or off a game because of announcers. Like Tony Romo has gotten so popular that there actually are a small population of people who, if they aren't watching Red Zone and their favorite team is implying on the one or the four o'clock slots, they will actually turn on the Tony Romo game just to hear Tony Romo. And that is unlike any other personality in the industry. And the whole point is to say that finding these beloved announcers is as much luck as it is being able to correctly identify talent. And it's not something that I think ESPN should be relentlessly pursuing. I think that should Greasy, Riddick, and Levy stay together for a long time, and who knows how long that might be, Riddick interviewed for two GM jobs in December, you know, things are always changing. If they stick with them for a couple of years, then everybody would be happy with that because they're good. People like them. People might not love them, but people definitely don't hate them. So. Well, to be perfectly clear, ESPN already found that beloved character. It's just that it's going to be on the second screen. It's going to be the alternate broadcast. They finally landed Peyton Manning after years and years of fishing for him. They landed the white whale and they've teamed him up with his brother and they're going to do what? 10 games a year from offsite. It's a sweet gig for the Mannings. They basically outsourced the entire job to Peyton's production company because he had ungodly leverage as we knew going into this process and ESPN did what they needed to do. So if I could try to dissect their offensive game plan, like a defensive coordinator up in the box, dip and skull, I would say that they want a, you know, a very traditional broadcast on the flagship. That's just Monday night football that secures the brand. But on that second opportunity with the Mannings, they are, banking on it being similarly successful to Tony Romo and what he did. And Peyton Manning, I think is the biggest voice to join coverage potentially ever in any sport. I mean, we could maybe have that argument. Peyton Manning's a pretty damn good quarterback at the apex of his post playing career. He's not like this has been like, Young people remember Peyton Manning. He was in the Super Bowl a handful of years ago. I think that they know what they're doing. And I have been famously contrarian, I feel like, on the Manning broadcast that it does not interest me. The Manning brothers' humor is not my type of humor. I wish that the Monday Night Football had chosen something a little bit different. And if nothing else, put a third voice in there so it's not all Manning all the time. But I was curious... Are you among the group that's looking forward to the Manning cast as much as like, cause when you look at sports media online, it seems to have uh, an approval rating that rivals Bruce Springsteen. I think that might be an exaggeration. 
But I will say that from a purely personal perspective, I am fortunate enough to have worked in this job long enough that I can separate my personal fandom feelings about the Manning family versus my professional opinion of the Manning family. I think that the Mannings will appeal to the wider public in ways that none of the other ESPN personalities who would theoretically call football games necessarily do. They're kind of these, like, I mean, you said it, they're very famous. Peyton Manning was in the Super Bowl six years ago. The way some people talk about ESPN landing them, it sounds like they've been doing this for like 15 years and they, they're actually like Captain Ahab landing his white whale after a lifetime of searching. It's only been six years. It is way, way, way sooner than what you might think if you just follow the headlines. And I think it's going to be a big success because for whatever reason, this like the humor of the Mannings really resonates just like this kind of lighthearted, like, hey, these guys are just like us. Like that really, that hits a mark within like a broader view in a broader audience, I should say, that is really somehow quite difficult to hit. From a personal perspective, I'm going to tune in because I'm very curious. Because the way that ESPN is describing this is basically like, what if you were in a man cave with the two Mannings watching a football game? Like, that's essentially what I'm imagining this is going to be. And that's not a super professional production. And I don't know what that looks like, because like I said before, all the money that goes into NFL, like each presentation of an NFL game is this big, grand, huge thing. And I'm sure in some respects, the Manning broadcast will be. But my interest is purely from a curiosity perspective. Because ultimately, when I watch the games, I'm paying attention to the announcers, but I'm more watching the game than I am listening to the announcers. So I will tune in. I think it'll probably be successful. I don't know how much I'm not, I'm not going to be falling over on my face, turning on ESPN2 every Monday or, you know, 10 Mondays out of the 17-week season. Yeah, I, I do think that once you've seen one or two of these things, you kind of get the picture. I think the newness and the novelty were, will wear off and eventually you'll just be watching a game and like kind of getting an episode of the Peyton Manning, Eli Manning podcast. And through that lens, I wonder what the possibilities are because I mean, if the Manning brothers had a podcast, yes, people would listen to it. Do you think it'd be a top 20 podcast? I don't. Uh, I know that you're throwing an NFL football game on the top. So obviously it is going to be a success. I wanted to go back and say that, you know, I, I have heard since I wrote about the Mannings from people who know that I'm wrong on a couple of things and I'll at least entertain it because I think that people made some good points to me, people who are know more about the situation and, and, you know, reached out and I'm not too big to say, maybe I'm wrong about this because number one, Monday night football has historically taken risks. Like this is, a pretty big swing for them, but they have a history of trying crazy things. I mean, Dennis Miller was on there for God's sakes. Like they have never been afraid to do something outside the box and see if it works. So it's not as though they are going uber conservative here and are not taking a big of a risk as, as I would like with this background of, Oh, they never do it. They do. They do try things. They they, you know, they run a few trick plays and they've been notoriously burned in the past when they don't work out. And that's actually something that I admire about the property long-term. So I think part of my initial criticism was criticism was probably wrong about that. And then secondly, having a third person in the booth from what I've heard is that Peyton Manning really is the real deal. And that having a third voice in there would only gum up the works and get in the way because he's that good. He's good enough to be 
the sidekick, the punchline, and the guy who's setting it up. He's very capable of moving the ball where it needs to go in the right situation. So through that lens, I'm excited to see if, if Peyton comes in and blows me away. I mean, yeah, how can you not, right? If you've been paying even a little bit of attention to the overall, you know, the Peyton Manning chase and Marsh, Andrew Marshan's favorite term when he coined, I will give him credit, the white whale chase. Um, you know, you have, there is a certain curiosity. Is he really like this guy? You saying that, you know, makes me even more interested. It's not that hard to believe Peyton Manning is that guy, but also every public appearance he's ever done, and including this one, will be very manicured and very, you know, it's supposed to be this way, and Peyton's going to set it up in the exact same way he wants, and that's worked out great for him so far. It's just, it's going to be interesting. I do think that this is almost, I mean, you know, we, you talked a lot about just now about ESPN and Monday Night Football, especially taking these big swings. And I think this is a little bit more of a tempered swing just because, they're putting a good amount of money into this, but this is just kind of them giving the keys to the Mannings and say, look, let's see what happens. And that's, I think that's less of a big swing than doing stuff like Dennis Miller or the Boogermobile, because those were so fundamental to the basic Monday night football broadcast. This is having, this is letting ESPN have their cake and eat it too. They have their main football broadcast. That is people aren't going to complain about things getting changed. They have the announced carrying over from last year that, people generally like well enough, nothing's going to go wrong. And if people hate the Manning broadcast, which I cannot comprehend that happening, I think it might just not be as popular as we think it'll be, but I doubt it will be widely criticized. Then it's only on ESPN too. And the Mannings have so much power in this that ESPN, if they were so inclined were, you know, wanted to do this, I guess we kind of be like, yeah, Mannings, they kind of wanted to do whatever they want. We let them and it didn't work out. Where I do think, there is some warranted criticism, or at least the way I would feel if I was an ESPN employee that was high up uh, on the NFL masthead in terms, of, in terms of talent. I would be frustrated that a high-profile job materialized and they gave it to Peyton, who's relatively new and an outsider. He's not someone who came up through the ESPN system. And then they gave it to Eli, who doesn't have anything to do with ESPN in a way. I would be frustrated that one of the great people on NFL Live wasn't able to get a position. I think they should be rewarding their NFL talent for propping it up during the day, trying to build something. They got two Super Bowls in this new package. There's going to be ample opportunities to do more. If we think that the Manning cast is the last ancillary program, it's not going to be. They will eventually be doing mega casts in some form, we think. I mean, it doesn't cost anything for them to put another broadcast on the air from studio like they do uh, they, they still do for the NCAA football championship game. I do think that if I was at ESPN and I missed out on this job, I might feel like it's a bit of a bummer, especially against the backdrop of seeing how few people at the network are being rewarded and kind of like that one B team is kind of getting smaller and smaller than there's the rest. Yeah, I definitely agree. It would certainly be because what this essentially is, from my viewpoint, is Omaha Productions could basically be called Happy Madison Productions. This is Peyton Manning. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of influence. He wants to do cool stuff with his friends and his brother. ESPN is letting him do that because he is Peyton Manning. And everybody understands why that is. I don't think you need to explain to a single person at ESPN why they're doing this, but it definitely is frustrating because these are the kind of jobs that 
you know, at ESPN have always been reserved for the people who have grinded the longest, the people who have earned it. That's kind of been ESPN's, like a lot of their shtick as, you know, a company is that they hire these people, they let them work their way up, they give them a shot at these, you know, big opportunities. And then if it works out, great, it's yours. If it doesn't, you know, we gave it a try. I personally, from my perspective of ESPN, that's what I foresee that company as what it was kind of built on in the early days and how it's progressed over the years. So, but again, everybody understands why this is happening. It's Peyton Manning, you know, it's frustrating as hell and it might flop, but I don't think it's going to flop because ESPN chose to kind of sideline their own talent, which probably makes it all the more frustrating. If it flops and it's because people don't like the Manning brothers as much as ESPN thought they did. That's basically it. Bless you. No, that was my, I was just making a transition noise. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were sneezing. No. A sneeze right. is a transition noise. Is that anything? No, I went. <laughs> is that better? That's... Yeah. Liam, the Patriots. What are we thinking? Cam Newton uh, unceremoniously released Mac Jones's. Tom Brady 2.0. He already has the second best selling jersey in the NFL. How are we thinking? How are you approaching this season? Lay it all on me. I will say that at the top. I got your back. I believe in Mac. Just the other day, I picked the Pats to win the division. I don't even know if you're going to be doing that. So this is a safe space. Whatever feelings you're having, please share them with me and the audience. Oh man, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worrying a little bit that we're just throwing them into the fire like this. I'm going to be honest. I did not anticipate this happening. I was pretty, pretty certain Cam Newton was going to get the starting job because that was the safe option. And, you know, Bill Belichick has his one famous risk he took where he started Tom Brady instead of Drew Bledsoe. And then he has his one infamous risk he took where he benched Malcolm Butler for the Eagles Super Bowl. Malcolm Butler retired, by the way. Maybe we'll get some on that. So this is like his third big one. This will, I think, will kind of determine if this guy is good at the big risk stuff or maybe not so good at the big risk stuff. And that means that this season just kind of means a lot more. I, until two weeks ago, thought this was going to be kind of another bridge year that I was going to be fine watching. Last year was a debacle, and I barely watched any of the games in the second half of the season, which is extremely surprising if you know me. I always watch the Patriots games, but not last year because it was brutal. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's a lot more is on the line this year because there is a good chance. You know, not, I'm, I wouldn't say there's a great chance or very little chance just to be safe, but there's a good chance that Mac Jones sucks. Like five quarterbacks taken in the first round, you know, historically speaking, at least two of these guys, maybe even three are going to be busts of some capacity. And I thought I was going to get another year to consider that possibility. But now I am very much faced with it that Mac Jones could in fact not be good that the 15, that there's a reason he was the last quarterback picked in the first round of this year's draft. But on the other hand, almost anything would it be better than trotting out a similar product to what the Patriots did last year. Now, obviously, the offense was overhauled, and everybody knows about that. Bill Belichick's money, blah, blah, blah. But, like, Cam Newton is not very good at football anymore. 
I can say that with some confidence. And I think that a lot of factors worked against him last year, but he was so bad at football that it ruined the experience of watching a football game. And so I am very happy that I now get to reclaim that experience, even if it will be a little bit more stressful than any of my other previous viewing years. But I think conflicted, conflicted. I'm excited the kid's getting his chance. I'm excited that I'm going to find out very quickly how the foreseeable future of my football fandom is going to go. Also very nervous because, you know, there's no guarantee this guy is any good at all, much less the savior, much less the person who I'm going to be rooting for instead of Tom Brady for the middle part of my life. On the Belichick element, you said this is his third big risk, big chance stuff. And we're kind of like one, one in the series with the deciding game three coming up this fall. It's funny to think about this coach in particular as someone who hasn't necessarily had to do something a lot in his career you'd think, well, he's done everything. And yes, before he caught on with the Patriots, he had some big risk stuff we could go through. You know, NFL scholars maintain, uh, you know, he took some big swings uh, with the Browns. But as a Patriot, he hasn't necessarily been in the situation of this is, I'm either going to strike out and look really bad or I'm going to hit a home run. This is kind of like a defining moment for him in a way. And we don't have enough evidence, which is odd for Belichick about which way it's going to go. So there is this cloud of uncertainty. I feel that feels new. It also makes it feel more exciting uh, from a neutral party. The Patriots have been extraordinarily boring as a neutral party for 15 years. I mean, it's just the standard of excellence. There's not a lot of deviation. There's like, you can choose whether to root against them and be jealous, or you can choose to appreciate Tom Brady's greatness I, like most people, I think have just vacillated between the two based on how the wind blows or however we want to like, you know, rationalize it to ourselves to get through the day. But what if Mac Jones sucks? Like that is one angle that I don't think is really being discussed a lot. And I don't think that he will. I think that he's pretty good Uh, or he's got the best PR that's ever existed. Maybe that's true, but if he stinks and he's really bad, number one, huge, huge mark against Belichick, especially if Brady wins another Super Bowl. I do think you would have to start asking the question if Mac Jones is a bust, is that the end of Bill Belichick in the NFL? I think it's at least bringing up based on how many years it can take to rebuild and reload. And then also like what assets do they have and do you trust the Patriots to ever be bad enough, bad enough in the draft to get like a top three guy? Yeah, I think everybody you know recognizes Bill Belichick, great coach. You can say that without anybody arguing with you. And probably, yeah, no, he's one of the best coaches of all time, no matter which way you slice it, no matter which side of the Brady Belichick debate you fall on, you know, you have to give credit to one of the two constants that have been on the greatest dynasty in sports history since 2000. You just got it. But if Mac Jones does suck, I think that the ramifications are really, they come down to two things. One, it will solidify the idea that Bill Belichick is terrible at drafting players. The last three years of drafting for the Patriots have been heinous. They have been absolutely horrendous. As we've all come to know and understand with more people getting into NFL draft concepts and mock drafts becoming more popular, the draft is a bit of a crapshoot. Every single team, even if they have the same guy in charge for long periods of time, has valleys and they have peaks. And that's 
Bill Belichick isn't, you know, exclusionary of that, even though he is the great Bill Belichick. But his biggest draft successes have mostly been luck to this point. Nobody, you know, credit to him for identifying Tom Brady in the sixth round, but also like how much can you really credit him for taking him in the sixth round? Rob Gronkowski, his greatest draft pick, had back problems. Nobody else wanted to touch him. Belichick got lucky. Otherwise, he probably would have been like a top 15 pick and the Patriots could have sniffed him. He's drafted a lot of solid players, but he's drafted equally as many busts. So I think that if Mac Jones flames out, then that is the final nail in the coffin on everybody's opinion is Bill Belichick, the drafter, which would have slight, but still they would be there, kind of uh, trickle effects on how people view his legacy if we're having that discussion. But the biggest thing is that if Mac Jones fails, then Bill Belichick is going to spend the final years of his career flailing and grasping at the last bits of success that he can find. Mac Jones has to be good for Bill Belichick to have any chance to ride out in glory. I don't know when he's going to retire, but the man is in his late 60s at this point. You'd think it'd be pretty soon on the horizon, even though it's impossible to comprehend Bill Belichick doing anything but dying coaching football. But if Mac Jones is bad, then it's just going to be a constant cycle of picking up guys like Andy Dalton and God forbid, Nick Foles. I don't want to see him in a Patriots uniform, but like backup quarterbacks, pe- quarterbacks people don't want, like cast off second round picks, Blaine Gabbert. It will just be, that's the only result because Bill Belichick, if Mac Jones is bad in year one, Bill Belichick does not have the patience to wait out to see if he figures out his shit. And that would be another re- another referendum on his overall coaching and personnel decisions. You know, He's very famous for cutting people sooner than everybody thought instead of too late. But how good is that if it's a young player? How good is that if it's a quarterback? It's just, if Mac Jones is good, it's a pretty simple like A to B to C. If Mac Jones is good. The Patriots are good. They might even probably won't be good enough to win another Super Bowl because the AFC is really top heavy now. There are a lot of really good teams with young quarterbacks set up for success for a long time. But you know you'll see the Patriots in the in the you know plus five hundred column. You know you'll probably see them on Wild Card Weekend, maybe even Championship Weekend once Mac Jones develops a little bit, and then Bill Belichick rides off into the sunset as you know one of the two greatest coaches to ever live. Another couple dozen wins under his belt. Mac Jones is good. He gets credit for picking the next Patri- uh, Patriots quarterback for the long term. Everything's fine. If Mac Jones is bad, that all changes drastically. There are a thousand different branching realities and possibilities that would result with, or that would result from that. How will which one will Belichick choose? Nobody knows. Nobody ever has been able to guess what Bill Belichick can do. But it's easy to predict how things will go if Mac Jones is good. If he's bad, we're back into the same realm that we were after Tom Brady left, or after uh, you know, after Cam Newton sucked last season. Like there are a thousand different ways this can go. Most of them are pretty bad. And maybe Belichick isn't the miracle worker everybody thinks he is. Can I be real with you for a minute? Yes. The Belichick-Brady breakup was great for content and great for storylines and made things more exciting and kind of ushered in this new world of the NFL for us to experience. But emotionally, it's a bummer. And I will say that even as someone who – like I said, I spent times hating the Patriots and found them to be a little bit boring. I think just now starting to realize how weird and unnatural it is that these two aren't together. Like when you talked about Belichick potentially kind of having a whimpering out at the end of his coaching career, that's a 
that's kind of a bummer. Like that's kind of sad to see because you always want to remember someone being as great as you know they are. You don't want to be sullied by those last moments. Great for Brady to do it individually with the Buccaneers. I didn't feel like it was a feel good story. It's just, I didn't anticipate how I would feel not seeing these two together and how weird it is still like we're still talking about it in my mind they're so connected that I don't forget that they're not together anymore but it just feels wrong it feels like it would have been amazing had they been able to go out on a high note together in New England I know that Brady's insane competitiveness is probably the primary factor for that uh and then I mean ego and pride and all that stuff but wouldn't it have been great if they would have found a way to ride off into the sunset together, even if that meant one fewer championship for one of them? Like if Brady never wins one again, yes, he gets the mantle, he gets the bragging rights, but deep down, do you think those bragging rights mean a scintilla to him compared to what he built and existed with, with the Patriots? Like to me, I'll always want to know that if the Buccaneers thing fulfilled him in a way that he thought that it would and knowing him we're never going to get a straight answer uh but it is kind of just a shame that they weren't able to figure out a way to continue to do this because i think that it takes away just a tiny bit just a tiny tiny bit of the patriots dynasty and what it meant to sports because it like even good marriage fell apart at the end yeah it would have been pretty awesome if they managed to figure out that huh would have been good. I definitely haven't thought a lot about that over the last year and a half. Definitely not. No. Ah. Anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that Tom Brady establishing this dynasty with this other guy is different than any of any, anything else that's ever been done in sports, you know? Guys have been great in a lot of different places. There have been plenty of baseball players and basketball players who bounce around and everybody knows how great they are and they can bring their team to greatness just by their mere presence. But it is unique that for 20 years, it was Brady and Belichick and literally every single other piece around them moved. Coaching jobs, coordinating positions, front office. The only exception is the owner, Robert Kraft who will probably never die, but it is, it, it's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon in sports that that happened. Him leaving makes things much more interesting. As you said, it was good content. The Brady Belichick debate now is, you know, lit anew and people can dissect kind of the particular aspects of what made that dynasty great because it's now in the rear view instead of continuing on and people can actually take a step back and appreciate it instead of just spew vitriol because they're good, which has been my experience for the most part over the years. But on the other hand, it's, I mean, I think this gets much more interesting and I think that this conversation will be different if Bill Belichick can return the Patriots back to the playoffs and then maybe even further than that. That's like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to, that they all, that they did it together and it makes for a lot of really great discussion, but will be make for even like movie, like movie quality, better discussions if they both manage to win a lot with in their new spots, that makes things much more fascinating. Now, obviously, it didn't happen last year. It's probably not going to happen this year, but if Mac Jones is good, 
it is a possibility that it happens. And so I think that is ultimately where we're at now with this whole discussion is that people have gone through the cycle, you know, the greater population has gone through the cycle of hating the Patriots because they're good, appreciating the Patriots because they're dead now. And now we're on to the next stage. We're on to, you know, Tom Brady already won a championship with his new team. Can he do it again? You know, is that was that just a one-off year that he got lucky and had just like an amazingly stacked talent? And, you know, Matt LaFleur didn't go for it on that fourth down. And the Patriots were bad. But if they're good, you know, it, it's a it's going to be interesting. I hope that it gets more interesting because this is, uh, like I said, it's a phenomenon in sports, this, this Patriots dynasty. And if more storylines can be wrung out of it because of individual success from the two people that made it great in the first place, that's great for discussion at the very least. All right. Well, in closing here, why don't I get your prediction for the Pats this year? And then ultimately long-term, do you think you will eventually own one of those Mac Jones jerseys? Uh, first I'm looking at 10 and seven, probably second in the division. I don't really have a lot of faith that the dolphins are going to be very good. I think the dolphins could end up being another 10 and 17. The bills are definitely going to win the division and the jets do be the jets. Will I ever own a Mac Jones Jersey? The likelihood is high. I think, I don't think that there's, I think that Mac Jones will be at worst like five. Like, I really don't think he's going to be terrible. Give me a count. Give me a count. At worst, Mac Jones is who? Make a headline here. Andy Dalton? No. I think at worst, Mac Jones is Kirk Cousins. I think that's the worst case scenario for him. Kirk Cousins started slow, and then he played really well, and everybody loved him, and then it sort of everybody figured out that he has a very, very hard ceiling that he will never, ever surpass. I think that's the worst-case scenario for my guy, Mac. I don't foresee him becoming even Andy Dalton or, like, Brian Hoyer or any of these other, like, journeyman quarterbacks. I think, and especially because of where the Patriots are as a franchise right now, part of what would require him to become an Andy Dalton-type journeyman is that he would have to leave. And if he's even adequate he's not leaving new england for the next five years at least so i think at worst he ends up as kirk cousins a guy who can put up big numbers you know sometimes he'll really surprise you with how big those numbers are will come up short frustratingly often and but ultimately he's good enough to keep around probably a little too good to throw away but not good enough that he can win a championship unless he has the perfect circumstances and perfect teams at best you know joe montana Yes, yes. Very realistic goals. Wow, we love to set those. <laughs> I'm Kyle Coster. That's Liam McEwen. He writes for us. He has two great things mentioned at the top of this podcast. Check him out. He also hosts the Press Pass podcast. Check it out. Rate, subscribe, download, review. Help us out here at The Big Lead as we try to grow our podcast network. Yeoman's work. Every little bit counts. Liam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Always a pleasure. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.